Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. So the conversations around prop tech are starting up again in earnest for commercial real estate. Uh, prop tech, of course, it, it never went away, but uh, we were focused on a few other things over the last few years. And meanwhile, more than $50 billion has been invested in prop tech just in the last two years, which means that we have to talk about it again. I'm, I'm glad, therefore, to be able to speak today with Steve Weichel. He's the head of industry relations and commercial real estate tech lead at the Real Estate Innovation Lab at MIT. So welcome, Steve, to the AFIRE podcast. I am very glad to be here. Thank you. So looking across this, and I, I think I'm going to just start very broadly here. Uh, looking across, there are hundreds and thousands of new businesses that are that are coming up in what is called prop tech. Uh, but what are some of those technologies and businesses uh, in particular that we should be paying attention to? Uh, that's a big question to start with. Um, so what we probably should do is just a quick a quick check in on on what happened in 2020 during COVID. The prop tech was moving right along quite well. Uh, 20, 2018, there was roughly $27, $28 billion in VC that went into the space in 2019. $18 billion, it dropped down a bit. In 2020, early on, we thought that prop tech was maybe going to go into the freeze. The early discussion with, with the at least on the VC side, was a real focus on have-to-haves rather than nice-to-haves, and then also taking a look at the new ideas and solutions that would help, that were, that were responding to COVID that would help us get back to work. And it turns out that the numbers in 2020 were maybe around $23, $24 billion of VC, if you use VC as a proxy for activity. So that's interesting. It was actually higher than 2019. And it didn't look like it didn't look like that would be the outcome early on in the year, but then things started getting going again. And a fair number of, well, some big fundings uh, started happening. And then we started to see the SPAC activity, which we can talk about if you'd like to a little later. So um, so prop tech and, and technology related to the built environment more broadly took a pause. There was a lot of dry powder waiting on the sidelines to decide where to invest, what to invest in. And a lot of companies were created during that time. So it was it ended up being a very productive year 2020, despite uh, despite the situation with COVID and not to discount the human tragedy that happened. But uh, in, in the prop tech world, there was a lot of activity. A lot of people are calling COVID an accelerant. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that's absolutely the case in your space as well, or it isn't? I think that's a good that's a good point that. Many of the trends that we were observing at the Center for Real Estate prior to COVID got accelerated. So if a few of the things that you and I have talked about or that other people have heard me talk about, this idea of the fracking of real estate, the reconfiguration of real estate, 
optimization of real estate, um, kind of a neo-mixed use, the, the convergence of the uses, that was going on anyway, where we were seeing co-working in former retail space. We were seeing residential close to the health clubs with lifetime fitness, which also have a health center inside, which also have co-working. So you, you had those, those kind of that mashup of uses that was happening. But now COVID has accelerated that. It's all enabled by technology. And there are some startups that are stepping to help enable that and to make it go, uh, make it go faster and more, uh, more smoothly. So that trend, that kind of fracking trend was going on. And then the, the automation of real estate, the kind of what, what we refer to as fully autonomous real estate, whether it be robotics or sensors, touchless everything as a result of COVID. And, and, uh, and then the last thing would be the intense focus on data and using data to understand what's really going on. That was happening prior to COVID, and now it's really been accelerated. It does feel that way, and a lot of the, the stories that I'm hearing from investors support that. Um, but, you know, most for the most part, except for those investors that are saying, hey, get me touchless or get me uh, a, a complete digital interface for all my residents in an apartment building so that I never even have to see them. And, and I'm uh, surprised at the amount of owners and operators that are able to do that now. Um, your, your, your metaphor of fracking, I think it, it's particularly colorful because there's a lot of there's a lot of very visceral kind of components to that, not the least of which we've been heads down. We've been you know worried about our own businesses and, and most have done very well in, in the last six months as they've been solving these problems. And yet there are still some fundamental fracking activities that that to a certain extent upend the business model, the value, where it goes, who has it, and the process. What are those things that, that real estate investors do you think should be paying close attention to as, as developments that will change their world? This is, a, this is a great question. And there were some of these questions were coming up prior to COVID. And then, of course, COVID revealed a lot more of them. So take a look at, at we've learned a lot from co-working. We, I think we should acknowledge the incredible change to our relationship with office space that came out of the WeWork experience. And, and we shouldn't forget that, that Regis was, has been around for 30 years. So that they, were, they were well ahead of the curve on that. Mm -hmm. But So if you look at that as an example, an early example of fracking, there were a bunch of questions about that. It was about the, the increased utilization is great by some measures but it also puts increased stresses on the building itself, the operations of the building, the infrastructure. Also, it changes the relationship of the user to the, the tenant to the owner, to the owner. Mm -hmm. And now granted, granted, you have these large blanket leases, but you have users now that are on a license model rather than a lease model, right. arguably. And so, and that's shorter term. So uh, if there's a term at all, how do you underwrite that? And how do you profile? How do you, what's the risk profile on that? It also has implications for utilities. It has implications for insurance. Mm -hmm. So there are a bunch of implications on the operational side as well. But doesn't that seem like a, like a transfer of or a, a square peg round hole problem? Where in real estate it's a passive investment, and however these are these are operations businesses that that are very much focused there. Yes. So that that that's one at that's certainly one aspect of it. Just if we just look at the operational aspect. 
it is a square peg round hole. Mm -hmm. But look at underwriting, finance, lending starts to become a square peg round hole because you've now you've got a model that looks more like a hotel rather than like an office building. We no longer. So I think one of the, the high level stresses now and it's happening has happened in all product types is the is the um, kind of the resistance to the old fashioned commitments. And so seven, ten, a 10 year lease with two five year renewals is no longer the standard in the industry. Mm. In the same way in multifamily, a 12 month apartment lease is under pressure because users want what they want, when they want it, and they only want to pay for what they use. And so you can see that in office, you can see that in residential, you can certainly see it in retail. You're even starting to see it in industrial and the other the other product types. And arguably it's been around, that's that's the hotel model. We've been with that a long time. So these are all, these are, this is an example, just one example of, of rethinking the relationship that people have with real estate. And just one of them is about your, the term, uh, the tenure and your commitment. And what does that do to our business that is pretty much based in all of these predictable kinds of relationships that are now under pressure? Let me just ask a question back up just a little bit um, around this, because this is certainly a big area of discussion, what the office looks like, where we're going with the office. And I can usually tell how much of an office portfolio someone has based on their prognostication about what's going to happen um, going forward. Um, <laughs> but, but all that being said, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times in, in, you know, on a regular basis, if not a, a daily, but at least a weekly basis, I hear from an investor that says, well, this means that high density office is over. No one's going to want to be in a, a, a classic co-working space where they're jammed in anymore. We're not going to be able to put everyone together because suddenly everyone's very sensitive to the idea of, of spreading uh, the virus or whatever comes after the virus. Does this put a, a crimp in the development of shared office as a business model or is it something to the side? Great question. I don't have the necessarily have the answer. We wouldn't claim to have the answer about the future, although at MIT we try to make an educated guess about the future. Uh, we also haven't. We aren't far enough into it to have data. To it's, uh, unfortunately, we don't really know what happened until we get the data and look back and say, "Oh, that's what happened." But the the I, and I'm hearing a clear story. But I'll just. I guess I can share some anecdotal observations that we've seen in our research and also out speaking at, at conferences and on webinars that um, the it will be different in different geographies, even if you. So what we do have is we have some data now um, from companies like Castle, which does access. If you look at the data on New York City versus the data on Houston, the percentage of workers that are back in the building it's quite a bit lower in Manhattan than it is in Houston. So there will be some geographic differences. There will be some industry vertical differences. If you're, I guess, if you're in one of the drug companies where you have to be in the lab, that data, that's going to look very different than if you are at a, um, a life insurance company where you can do a lot of remote work. So I think that's pretty obvious. So there will be some geographic differences. There will be some differences whether cities are high driving cities versus high um, public transit cities. And I also wonder if on the other side of, of the vaccine, if things will start looking different. And 
the, uh, I'll add a few more um, anecdotes that some of this may be, there's some great research about, I forget who did the research, but some great research recently on the trust level. We, we shouldn't overestimate the human element. You, you pointed to it. It, it, we could have a fantastic brand new class A office building with all the greatest technology, but if there isn't a trust level in the building owner, operator, and or your boss, um, you may still not come back. And so there will be a, there will be a human element and, a, and an element of trust. And the last thing I'll say on this is that some of the numbers, the survey numbers saying that 70, I, I, I'm, I'm, just estimating here because the, the numbers have been different, but um, something like 40 or 50% of people surveyed said that they would be willing to come back to the office two or three days a week. And uh, no, actually I have it, I have it turned around. It's 75% of the survey respondents said, I'd like to come back a couple of days a week and 30 or 40% said, I'd like to work permanently from home. I think we've got to observe what really unfolds uh, as far as how many people really do want to continue to work at home? How many people miss going to the office? I know I miss going to campus and working with my colleagues in the same room. So, um, so I think it's a little early to tell, probably is the, the takeaway from that. Whole conversation about the return to work. There are a lot of really smart people working on this. We've done some work on it at MIT, but there are a lot of really smart people working on it. There's starting to be a lot of data available, and and I think we'll get a picture of what is happening as it unfolds, and it, we'll, we'll get that picture pretty quickly as it's unfolding. I, I agree. It's it's really a stay tuned. You know, let, let's wait for the yes. data to come in. Um, you know, I, I feel like we're a bunch of uh, newscasters on, uh, on on election night uh, prognosticating <laughs> yes. who won based on right you know the the the, uh, the, the rain in in uh, certain districts or something like that You're and, right. and we can't right. we don't know and we will we just have to wait for those numbers uh, to start to come through uh, so what are some other areas of fracking that that you're seeing that we should be paying attention to well I am we, I am intrigued by this this matchup People are really starting to think, owners and developers are really starting to think through this. So you see the headlines in the, I think there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal that hotels may be the new working. And, you know, it, it's a good attention grabbing headline. But think of it, you've got, you've got hotels that are, uh, uh, many of them are struggling uh, or unoccupied or shut down. But what about people who really, they can't go back to the office yet, but they're, they, they have, they have uh, either it's uncomfortable or unworkable for them to continue working at their dining room table. And so there you can have a private office in a, in a clean kind of not terribly dense building. And maybe you have an office to go to and it's sort of like a co-working scenario. Um, I forget the name of the operator that just cut a deal with one of the hotels in New York to do exactly that. So that's something we might not have considered before. Um, then industrial and distribution and fulfillment in uh, micro micro environments pop kind of pop up micro last block distribution. Uh, there are some startups playing in um, in empty retail uh, storefronts in um, under occupied or unoccupied B and C class buildings. Could we take some of these historic B and C class properties and start using them for storage and or ful fulfillment? because that's a struggle for that one area of, of activity in the economy that has exploded, which is getting our Amazon boxes to our front door. And so lots of rethinking on, on the existing assets that we have, because we don't have time to build new assets for this stuff. 
but there are a whole bunch of empty ones, underutilized ones. Can we do micro distribution in those environments? And that's very interesting. Will it be a huge, will it become an asset class of its own? I don't know. I don't know what the total addressable market is for something like pop-up micro distribution and whether they'll even own the real estate. I, I don't know yet. Um, but those are a couple of areas that I, that that area of the convergence of uses is, I think, very interesting. Those are both areas that don't sound like they extend the leases. No, <laughs> we're not no. that the, the days of long term leases, which, of course, our entire ecosystem depends upon. That seems to be uh, not quite evaporating, but certainly is diminished. Yes, I, I think that's safe to say that anybody who is accustomed to having very long, stable leases, even in the very high quality tenant um, uh, credit tenant environment, there will probably be pressure to um, maybe not blow that up, but there will be uh, pressure to be more collaborative uh, between owners and their tenants. What about the kind of elimination of, and it's somewhat related, the, uh, the elimination or the diminishment of transaction friction? So think about you know lease, think about even sale. There is there's considerable amount of friction that's there, um, and there was a headline recently in terms of uh, Zillow, the residential uh, kind of listing service online, now offering or claiming that they're offering to buy someone's house based on their valuation on Zillow on their estimate. There's estimates. Thank which, you. Yes. <laughs> which wasn't always, it was always a bit suspect, but it's gotten better and better because the AI and the data and, and it is getting so much, I hesitate to say smarter because they really don't think, but it's getting more accurate. So this is a great question. We could have added this to your early, you know, we were putting together a list of big trends. Um, this is, this is an area where so many startups are playing. Um, anywhere where there is friction, anywhere where there's a process, anywhere where there are third-party valid, where there's third-party validation. So there have been some announcements. You take a look at at some of the, um, I forget one of the more recent SPAC announcements is a was a um, was a platform for for title and escrow, and um, and the process on transacting the real estate. And then you have the whole, you have the insurance piece of it. So um, on the investment side, lots of companies trying to make that process more transparent, cleaner, less fraction, uh, uh, less friction, and, uh, and, and more transparency, less opacity, because we're in an industry where a lot of, a lot of success comes from the information asymmetries and the opacity and the friction. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of humans in the ecosystem. And so a fair number of startups taking a look, and, and frankly, the legacy companies as well, who have quietly, I, I, as you know, I like to focus on the startups, but the legacy, the big legacy companies have all been taking a look at process. You look at Yardi, you look at First American Title, you look at um, any of the big traditional companies, they've all been operating behind the scenes to try to modernize and automate those processes. Well, what what impresses me about Zillow and their estimate is that they're not simply taking an existing process and making it smoother. They're they're eliminating some parts of the process. Uh, just just cut into the chase and, and and do it that way. I mean, there's 
That to me is striking. A, it's frightening, right? Since to your point, so much of what we do in this business is be there to help work through a difficult process. Uh, if the process is no longer difficult, what is the what happens to, to all these people, their expertise, uh, the work that they do? Um, and that, that's just an open question. I don't. I have no idea. I mean, you know, how do we kind of transform? But it seems to me that all of us need to be watching these things closely, not just from the standpoint of whether or not I'll buy that or, you know, or I'll use that or whatever, but from the standpoint of saying, what does this mean? Uh, that's a fair observation. I had, I remember when I was out speaking about PropTech before anybody was calling it PropTech, um, I would speak to groups of commercial brokers and, and I would list a whole bunch of really fantastic companies. And at the time, most of those startups were sort of point solutions. They were very narrow point solutions, but I think the audiences could see the writing on the wall and they would say, you know, half jokingly, they would say, so Steve, does this mean I'm, you know, going to be out of, out of a job? And I, it's useful. It's instructive to look back at, remember when the dot-com boom was claiming that they were going to disintermediate residential brokers and residential brokers was going to go away. And there were some outcomes of that. Redfin now has kind of a new, has a different relationship than the traditional one with brokerage. And there were some companies that survived that were, were kind of direct uh, uh, buyer to seller direct. And, but I, if we look at the number of residential brokers, it's actually higher. That industry is a bigger industry than it was during the time when the technologists were claiming that they were going to wipe out that portion of the ecosystem. So I, I think that it might be a bit premature to claim that these entire segments of the, of the system are going to get wiped out. That said, I, we also know that brokers will become more uh, consultative, for lack of a better word. The, the great thing about technology is that the mundane, boring, repetitive things that were low or no margin that, that we all had to do in our respective area of the industry, those will probably get automated so that we can then focus on the part that the machines don't do as well, which is the, the creativity and the, and the thinking, the rational thinking that goes on behind, as we know, any transaction in real estate, whether it's development or buying or selling or designing. So, so I, think it's pre I think it's pretty much, it's good to worry about it and it's good to stay nimble. But I don't think that there are going to be large swaths, at least in the near future, for uh, uh, in in real estate that are going to get replaced. Uh, that's that's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the same time, one of the things from your residential broker model that I think we need to pay attention to, yes, there's more brokers, but there's also tighter fees that they're not able to to charge as much as they did 10 years ago. Um, and the ones that, that there's a bifurcation. So you've got the, the, the brokers that are very good, that are very value add, that know how to get the right clients, et cetera, that are doing all the things that you're suggesting, you know, we need to do as, as tech takes over. Uh, and then there's everyone else. Uh, so there's, there, I think there's some, some nuances to that that we may or may not like um, going forward. Yes, I, I think that's fair to say. It will not be without some pain at, during the transition. Whenever there's a technology or an innovation transition, a tipping point, a major change in the landscape, there, is, there are always going to be, I, I hesitate to call them winners and losers, but there will certainly be some pain in the, uh, in the adoption. 
it's my understanding some of the numbers on, yes, we have many more residential brokers, but also some of the numbers are that the average income on those brokers is fairly low. And I, that I haven't seen the comparison of how it was prior to the dot-com boom versus after the dot-com boom. But I suspect, to your point, there's downward pressure on commissions. There's downward pressure on margins in all areas of real estate, not just in brokerage. So there will have to be a move toward more velocity, more volume in order to make it up. Mm -hmm. Well, and just just think about what happened to the bond market when it when it reduced its friction, say, 100 years ago. Uh, the margins went down. I mean, that, that's what that's what comes along with that. Margins went down. And even in brokerage, you know, going to going to zero dollar, zero cost trades in brokerage. Oh, yeah. But Fidelity apparently just hit it out of their out of the park uh, in there. They, they, they uh, announced earnings uh, just recently. And apparently they had a better, it was their best year ever. Um, I don't know what really? the specific metrics are in the, in, the, in, the, in the money business to understand what, what does, is that number a good number or is it just a big number, which is two different things. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I, think, but I think the industry will, will uncover uh, different ways to add value and find margin elsewhere. One wonders, when do they get to the point of, of paying the investor? Um, a commission for, for trade. I mean, it's the direction it's been going. It's a competitive direction. Well, you're right. You're right. If you, if you're, I mean, if, if you think your customers provide a certain strategic, whether it's your personal data or something like that, would you pay somebody to invest in your fund rather than have them give you a commission to invest in your fund? I don't know the answer to that question, but that's a good point. Here's, here's one that came up in a conversation. Given that everybody's working at home at their dining room table, should companies should that be part of a company's corporate real estate portfolio, and should the company be paying for the square footage in my living room? Right, <laughs> a little provocative, <laughs> yeah, right? A little absolutely, provocative. absolutely. And, and to some extent, they are because they're they're subsidizing new furniture and better equipment and and better internet access. So, in a way, that was out of necessity was going to happen. But could somebody make the argument, hey, I'm, you're using 100 square feet in my living room. I would like to get compensated for that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> and, and then the, the taxes get all sorts of interesting. So we, we uh, oh, right. you know, keep a lot yeah. of accountants employed as we try to figure that, out. Yeah, that's, it. For, that's for a separate conversation. We're going to take a break right now uh, and continue this conversation in part two, where we will discuss taxes, blockchain, dangers, and opportunities. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.